Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to be talking about Interbike 2016. We're all back in our respective offices and we're writing up a lot of our coverage from the show and so we thought it would be fun to talk about what we saw and what we thought about this year's trade show. So we've seen from a number of media publications, people talking about the vibe at Interbike this year, and it, it felt a little bit like a down year for a lot of reasons. What did you guys think about the show? Did you get that same feeling? I did, for sure. Um, I thought it was very low energy. That was a joke, but uh, it was pretty subdued. Um, you could definitely notice that attendance was down both days at the outdoor demo portion of the show and the indoor show as well seemed there just seemed like there were less people wandering around the halls and there did seem to be a fair amount of hand wringing i think there's a bit of that every year at the trade show but um you know just a general state of uneasiness about uh the bicycle industry and where we are and where we're headed so i think there's a lot of uncertainty for people who work in the industry right now so i think um you could feel that out of the convention. At least that was my impression. Yeah, I've been of the opinion that the trade show, sort of in its current form, is a dying breed. And I think Interbike just really drove it home this year. You know, it's becoming less and less important for bike dealers, um, for media people. Like, we're not seeing any new product there. You know, it's always really good and important to get face-to-face with brands, talk about ways that we can work together. But it doesn't seem like maybe the trade show is the best format for that interaction because, you know, Interbike is monetizing on showroom floor space. And when you're not seeing like any new products or very few new products, I should say, um, at the expo, it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect between, you know, the way it's being monetized and like what's actually the important parts of the show, you know. So change is afoot for sure. But exactly what that change is. Like Aaron said, I don't think anybody really knows yet. So one of the things, I read some articles once we got back from Interbike. They kind of explained things a little better to me. I mean, obviously we're not bike dealers, so we're seeing it from the perspective of media. But apparently the, there are a lot of things happening that are not good for bike dealers right now. A lot of them have a ton of inventory from years past that they still haven't sold. And the big three companies, Trek, Giant, and Specialized, who don't go to Interbike, by the way, uh, all announced big reductions in prices and things, basically marking down prices, which is not never good for for the dealers. So a lot of them came into the show with that on their minds. And also this article that I read mentioned that they estimated 85% of independent bike dealers' sales come from those big three brands. So again, Specialized, Giant, and Trek. And so just considering that those three aren't at the show, that means that, you know, this whole big production that's Interbike is really only 15% of the market. So for a lot of bike dealers, it doesn't make sense to go to a show when it's, you know, such a small part of their business. And ironically, Specialized won bike of the year at Interbike this year, even though they didn't show up. <laughs> so, so it's like, wow. why, why should they? I mean, they, they've got their own show. Trek has their own show. So. That's kind of the way it, the market is shaking out, and it's really being dominated by the big players, and they're they're pushing out everybody else to the detriment of you know Interbike and and all that. So 
it definitely, it, it's definitely understandable. There wasn't, you know, it's not like everybody's just being really negative. Like there's, yeah. <laughs> there's really, there's really challenging it's stuff happening. Tough, tough times. Yeah. I think sometimes maybe we forget who this show is for. It's not necessarily for the media. Like, well, that's part of it for sure is getting, you know, exposure for your new products and things like that. Really it is for the dealers um, you know, it's for the, the bike shops to, you know, meet with their vendors and see what's new, ride new bikes. And, you know, if they're not seeing a benefit to being there, then they're not going to go. You know, it's not it's not cheap for them to get there. You know, flights in and out of Vegas are cheap. The hotels are cheap. That's why that's one of the points you always hear when people ask why the show is even in Vegas. You know, not exactly a, a cycling mecca by any means. Um and that's a big part of it. But the show is expensive and, you know, you have to take time away from your business. You know, September is usually a time where the season's winding down, but still in a lot of places. I mean, it's still 90 degrees here in Atlanta, so shops are still doing plenty of business. So, yeah, we kind of have to keep that in mind that, you know, the show isn't for us. It's not for consumers. It's really supposed to be for the dealers. And when you have, like Jeff said, you have 85% of the market is covered by three brands and those three brands aren't there, then yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense for them to go. And it's kind of an unfortunate situation because, you know, it's a, it's a, I guess a vicious cycle kind of thing where, you know, if, if these big brands pull out, they can be, there's not enough attendance there. So we're pulling out. So then, you know, giant does that and then Trek does that and then specialized does that. And so attendance goes down and, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. People aren't going because the brands they want to see aren't there. So attendance continues to, to dwindle. So it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, the, uh, it seems like we're in a space right now where, um, you know, the big brands are off doing their own thing, which is working well for them, but it's kind of at the, to the detriment of the rest of the industry. So I think in a, in a certain way that, uh, the sides really need each other, you know, the, the smaller brands need the bigger brands there to get people in the door so they can see their, you know, latest and greatest trinkets. Yes. And one, one bright spot though, that I will mention is that this year Interbike is trying an outdoor demo style event on the East Coast. So for dealers who didn't want to commit to going all the way out to Interbike for the full show, there will be an event in Charlotte taking place in October. So It'll be interesting to see how many people actually show up for that. I know we will probably be there for a little bit of that show, so we'll definitely keep you informed about how that goes. Yeah, it's going to be a very, like Jeff said, it's going to be a very demo-focused show. It's all going to be outdoors from what I understand. It's at the Whitewater Center in Charlotte, so there's trails right there for people to ride. So it's it's going to be much more about the the bikes than any other associated products so you're not probably going to see that many you'll see some out there but there probably won't be that many apparel companies and you know helmet companies and that that sort of thing so aside from the general mood of interbike what did you guys what themes stuck out to you guys from all the things that you saw at interbike last week e-bikes in your face <laughs> that's really where i guess they feel the industry is going you know we we don't do very much e-bike coverage on our site. It's not really in our wheelhouse, and, and frankly, it, it pisses a lot of people off um, <laughs> when we say anything about e-bikes, good or bad. So we we try to 
we tend to stay away from that. But yeah, I mean, less probably mountain e-bikes, but a lot of commuter e-bikes that are just everywhere. You know, there's folding e-bikes. There was, yeah, it was just every booth seemed to have some sort of e-bike going on or e-bike accessory or check out this e-bike motor. It was very, very apparent. And, you know, those people invested a lot of money marketing to the crowd that was there, to the attendees. So all the, you know, any pamphlet you picked up or any magazine about the show, it was guaranteed to be chock full of e-bike ads. So that seems to be where, um, where the industry is going, whether we like it or not, or at least, at least where they, they think it's going. Yeah. And, and on a related note to, you know, what we were talking about earlier with the struggles that bike shops are having, another thing that I read recently is that e-bike sales are up almost 70% in the U S this year compared to last year. And so sometimes we get the impression that this is just all marketing driven and it's these companies that are, you know, these big brands that are trying to make a lot of money, but it's actually in a lot of ways, the shop owners are really interested in e-bikes because that's one of the categories that's growing right now. You know, people aren't buying the regular bikes as quickly as they had hoped. So they're looking to e-bikes to hopefully kickstart their growth again. Um, so yeah, e-bikes are not going to be stopped, at least not this year. We'll do our best. <laughs> I think on the on the flip side, it's really interesting. So e-bikes obviously growing huge, but we're seeing a lot of growing on like the total opposite end of the spectrum as well, which you could say is bike packing, like ultra endurance, like human powered, like long distance travel. It's kind of interesting. It's like the total antithesis of e-biking in a way. But uh, we saw bikepacking stuff all over Interbike, uh, bikes that are optimized for bikepacking, like lots of drop bar, like uh, mountain bikes, um, but also tons of frame bags, bike bags, and uh, accessories, and even tents um, designed specifically for bikepackers. And yeah, so I was actually chatting with a friend of mine who runs a bikepacking site, uh, Neil Belchenko of Bikepackers Magazine, and uh, he was like, yeah, the expo is pretty great for us because there's bikepacking stuff all over the place. So that niche is definitely gaining traction, I think. But I think in a larger sort of uh, analysis, like, you know, so bikes are really good these days. You know, we've, we've really dialed in the mountain bike. Like, the components are excellent. You know, we're making incremental improvements, but there's very few, like, major improvements. And... You know, let's like let's say you have a like an enduro bike that's really great right now. You know, it's honestly not a whole heck of a lot lighter than the bikes that we had like a few years ago. It probably runs a lot better, but like we're not dropping weight. Or, you know, the bike still comes in where at like the twenty eight to thirty pound mark, depending on how much you wanna pay. But uh I think one thing that is seeing a lot of improvement are sort of like just bike accessories and like this isn't super flashier like you know really what is the word i'm looking for you know it's not it's not cool to talk about bike accessories but like a lot of things that go on your bike are getting better designed smaller lighter and easier to carry like uh, lots of on bike tools are much easier to carry and they're much more conveniently placed we're seeing lots of like great like i said bike packing bags but you know that can be used for day rides as well and a lot of these accessories are lighter and better thought out, which 
um, consequently saves you weight. So, I mean, that's a place where a lot of normal riders could say many pounds of weight is by just dialing in the gear that they're carrying on their bikes with a better hydration pack or a lighter tool or a better frame bag, you know? So it's not maybe cool to talk about, but people are really dialing that stuff in. These yeah. Days. Another accessory that I noticed a lot of change happening with is the bike helmet. So on the one end of the spectrum, you have a lot of like electronics being added to helmets, which perhaps that's a trend on its own, just a lot of different electronic devices for your bike and for your accessories. But specifically with helmets, people are putting lights on the helmets, you know, headlights and taillights. People are putting turn signals on helmets, which doesn't cameras. really... Yeah, cameras. So that's interesting. But then the helmets themselves too, they're getting a lot more attention these days, it seems. So a lot more protection, MIPS style stuff is happening. There's even this thing called the ice dot that I think maybe we've written about in the past, but it's a, basically a sensor that can tell when you've crashed and it like alerts your smartphone to send out an alert. And I even saw a company that's putting those in every single one of the helmets that they make. So it's really like the connected helmet and also just a lot of materials and things that are being developed to make helmets a lot safer. So that's kind of interesting to see, kind of unexpected um, since, you know, the helmet has been around for a very long time, but there's definitely some good innovation going on there. Okay. So getting back to full on mountain bikes, what were the, the best bikes that you guys saw and or tested at Interbike last week? Well, I've got two choices for this, and they're on opposite ends of the spectrum and for different reasons. So bear with me. But the first choice is on like the affordable, like every man end of the spectrum. And this is sheer mountain bike utility, uh, which is the Marin Hawk Hill. And that's a, a bike that I've got short right up on the side about. But it is a full suspension trail bike, 120 mils of travel, and it has a pretty solid entry-level parts kit. Well, better than entry-level. It's a pretty solid parts kit, and it only retails for $1,500, which is uh, a pretty good price for what you get on that bike. And I thought it was pretty cool to see, you know, a brand that sells a lot of boutique high-end bikes also, like, create, like, a solid bike that, you know, an entry-level or intermediate rider could buy and ride for a really long time without having to change anything on. So... I think that's pretty cool to observe in the industry when we see lots of like these $10,000 bikes um, all over the place. But speaking of $10,000 bikes, on the other end of the spectrum, I saw a Willier um, Jardin Plus. I'm probably pronouncing that totally wrong. But this is a, a beautifully lugged chromoly steel frame uh, that had like wood chipper style drop bars and 29 plus wheels and tires with a a carbon fork up front and it was just just an absolutely beautiful bike uh, you will see something on this on the site soon um, if not already up there but just a gorgeous bike and I don't know if I'd actually ride it all that much but I was like dang this is a pretty much a work of art and the price tag on the sign was $2,849 which I can only imagine is the frame set and maybe you get the carbon fork with the frame for that price if you're lucky so the complete bike price, if you have to ask, you probably should not be buying this bicycle. Uh, but it is, it was pretty beautiful. Sounds like a sexy bike. Indeed. I, uh, that's one of the bikes where you can almost buy it and like hang it on your wall and uh, call it good. 
but I don't have that kind of money, so I don't do that. What about you, Jeff? What bikes did you ride? Uh, well, yeah, I'm like you. I've got a couple that sort of stood out to me, um, and bo- I actually got to ride both of them. So the first was the GT Sensor, which has been redone for this year. It's a 140-millimeter travel full suspension bike. Uh, I tested the carbon version. I'm not sure if there's an aluminum version, actually, but the carbon version is is really sweet. It's a lightweight bike. GT has put the the shock down low, like almost right right at the bottom bracket. So you get a lot of a lot of the weight down low toward the bottom bracket, toward the center of gravity on the bike. So it just handles really great. And yeah, everybody at the show was really raving about that bike. Everyone who was able to test it at the outdoor demo. Um, so I'll be posting a review of that bike soon. But yeah, that was a really good bike. And then I also rode, again, other end of the spectrum. I rode the Surly Wednesday. And that's a fat bike. It's no suspension, steel frame. And honestly, I, I have a hard time telling apart all the different Surly fat bikes. Like they've got so <laughs> many hardtail, rigid fat bikes. Um, but this was the only one that I hadn't ridden. I've ridden the Ice Cream Truck and the Moonlander and the Pugsley. Uh, but this was like the last one that I needed to like, you know, finish my punch card. And this is actually get a free tall boy when you ride all the Surly bikes. You should, you should. I did get a koozie, a tall koozie. (laughs) So that's cool. But, but yeah, I really like that bike and it's, I mean, again, it's really basic. It's got like X5 drivetrain on it, Tektro mechanical disc brakes. So it's a really basic bike, but man, it, it handles really well. And I had fun riding it and passed a bunch of people going uphill on it. So And the great thing is that's a really affordable bike, Um, something that I might end up purchasing at some point (laughs) um, because it is just it's so affordable and it's it seems to be a really versatile bike. So that's that's what I like. What about you, Aaron? Uh, I I saw a bunch of sweet bikes at the indoor portion of the show, particularly from BMC. Their line is looking pretty dialed this year. But in terms of the bikes that I rode, I had two that were very neck and neck for my favorite bike one being the marin rift zone pro i guess you would maybe call it a either a short travel trail bike or a longer travel xc bike uh it's a 29er 120 milli travel but very the geometry and everything definitely skewed more towards the cross country end than the trail end but it was just a really snappy fun bike you can read in my review of it, but I said like the the sensation of speed was probably greater than the speed itself. Like you just you felt like you were going really fast on the bike. Uh, in some of the choppier sections of Bootleg Canyon, it did get uh, a little squirrely, but a little squirrely can be fun too. You know, it's a it's fun to ride a bike at its limit. You know, instead of maybe riding around too much bike. So that was a really, a really great bike. It's something you could press into race duty if you needed to. So if you're a reformed racer and you still maybe make it out to a couple of races every year, or if you do longer marathon-style cross-country events, the, the Rift Zone could be a really good bike for you. The other one was a total surprise and really walked away impressed with it was the new Turner Flux. This is the fourth generation of the Turner Flux. It now comes in carbon. Um, So I believe all their bikes are, Turner's bikes are carbon now, which is a little bit of a sad thing since that means none of them are made in the U.S. any longer. That kind of used to be Turner's claim to fame was these 
really stout, durable, quality, long-lasting aluminum frames that were built in the U.S. And, you know, the way the market is today, when it costs as much to buy a, an American-made aluminum frame as it does to buy a you know, Taiwanese or Chinese made carbon frame, people are going to, people are going to go for the carbon almost all the time, which is what they've found out. So they've moved their line to it, but it's a, it's a short travel, uh, 27.5, not plus compatible. It doesn't have boost spacing. So there's nothing, when you look at this bike on paper, like I got the press release about it a month or so ago and you read over the specs and you're just, just not, nothing's really blowing your skirt up. So it, it uh, it handled great. It was a snappy bike. It's uh, 120 rear travel, 130 front. You can run up to 140 mil fork though if you want to get something a little more aggro. But yeah, just a really well balanced, climbed great, light, efficient. It's got the DW link. Okay, so beyond the sexiness of mountain bikes, what about accessories? Which mountain bike accessories impressed you guys at the show this year? I didn't see anything groundbreaking by any means. Uh, there were a lot of cool tools there. Uh, so I saw a variety of different, just neat tools from, uh, from feedback sports, from Silka, if you want to get a little fancy, from PrestaCycle, saw some neat things from them. But one product that obviously is not a new product, but something I've never spent any time with is the 9.8 dropper post. And familiar with the brand or whatever but i i didn't know how the mechanism worked or anything so i went by their booth and they had a a cutaway and you could see how the dropper post operates and you can see why they're very popular and why they're almost always sold out and why other companies have licensed their design because it's a really simple system it's fully mechanical so there's no hydraulic cartridge so it's supposed to be one of the most reliable options there is it should work in freezing cold weather because you don't have the hydraulic fluid you know getting cold and slowing down your post either dropping or coming up yeah it's basically just very when you look at it you're like oh yeah duh like everybody should do it like this so that was really cool i'm i I like to nerd out on cutaways of products anyway so that was just pretty cool that they had one in their booth what did you like greg well, I already talked about the Dr. Trey hitch rack from Yakima. Uh, so you can hear about that more in a previous podcast we did or on the website as well. Uh, so that was still like my number one choice. I, uh, pretty stoked on that hitch rack and I would totally run that thing on my own car. But beyond that, uh, I checked out the bags from Revelate Designs, the frame bags and sal bags and those sorts of things and lots of really cool features built into their bags. You know, maybe more than some people want or need. It's hard to say. But, yeah, they've definitely thought through a lot of the closure designs, which I found really cool. Like, you could choose from a zipper design or a roll top or different types of straps. So, there's no end of options to how you can customize your frame bake setup for sure. But also saw cool helmets, cool shoes. The new – oh, Jeff, you're going to have to help me out. What's the – Name model name of the Pearl Izumi shoe you have? X Project. Yeah, the new X Project shoe from Pearl Izumi is uh, looking significantly improved over the ones that uh, Jeff reviewed. Better, like rubberized lugs on the outsole, but still like sort of a slimmed down cross country design, which I think that's a pretty cool combination. 
they added a boa closure to it, which is a really good thing because I ripped my uh, ratcheting closure system off of my X projects pretty early on and they didn't have replacements for them. So those shoes are just done, unfortunately. But Boa has an excellent warranty and they'll fix or replace pretty much any Boa on any type of shoe. So that's that's really good peace of mind. Yeah, Perlozumi also placed the Boa closure in a good spot. Like lots of people are placing it like on the side of the shoe, which is really prone to rock strikes, you know, on the outside of your foot. And whereas Boa placed it like right on top, sort of where you'd expect the laces to be. I don't know why more people don't do that, but sort of Perlozumi placed the Boa on, right on top of the shoe. So in theory, it's a much more protected spot. And uh, depending on what level of shoe you get, um, like if you have the very nicest shoe, you get two boas for maximum closure. If you have like a step down, you have like one boa and one strap. So uh, they're, they're looking pretty good. Nice. So a couple of products that I found really interesting. First one was the a helmet from Bole. So Bole is the sunglasses brand, but they have a helmet called The One. And I actually saw it at Sea Otter and... It's kind of an ugly helmet, honestly, but it's a cool concept. The good news is that Bole has improved the design, basically just improved the aesthetics of it. Um, so it looks a lot better now. But basically, this helmet is really modular. So there's, it's called the one, and there's literally just one version of it that's for road or mountain. And when you buy the helmet, you get a bunch of accessories in the box. So you get a little blinky light that you can pop into the back of the helmet there is uh, a visor, obviously, for the mountain bike version. And there are even these like arrow inserts you can put to cover up the vent holes. So you can turn your helmet into like a winter helmet, you know, to keep more heat in. Or also, it makes it more aerodynamic for road biking as well, though. I bet it would be really hot if you did that to your road helmet. But yeah, it's just cool to see all those different things you could do with the same helmet. And not only that, they have a little slot where you can stick your sunglasses inside your helmet um, and hold them up there. So that's really convenient and it makes sense for a sunglasses brand. And then the other thing that I really was impressed with, which I didn't think I would be impressed with, Aaron put it on my calendar. I didn't know how it showed up there, but uh, I met with a company called VeloFix and they're doing these mobile bike repair trucks that they franchise out to people in different cities. And I had seen this before, I think it was last year or maybe even the year before from Beeline Bikes, which is a company people might be familiar with. It's a similar concept, but these these trucks are, are really well outfitted and they're not just for mobile repair. They basically are like a mini showroom inside. So you can go in and you can buy things like Garmin GPSs and they have a few handlebars and they have a whole display of like riders sunglasses and things. So it's really like a pop-up store and you know, I imagine these, these trucks will be at events and races and maybe just at your local trailhead on the weekend. And honestly, if I was a bike shop owner, I'd be scared to death of this um, and probably with good reason. So some of the people that are buying these trucks or buying these franchises are actually former bike shop owners. So people that get tired of paying the rent and, you know, realize that a lot of that business is going away. And so they're getting a VeloFix truck. So another related thing to the the things we were talking about that are bumming the bike shops out is that Beeline Bikes is going to be distributing 
or delivering bikes for Raleigh and Diamondback. And they're not going to be the exclusive distributors, but when people buy a Raleigh or Diamondback bike online, they're going to have the option to have the bike shipped to their local bike shop or to Beeline Bikes. And what Beeline Bikes will do is they will take the bike and deliver it directly to the customer, to the customer's door, and they'll set the bike up for them and, and probably try to sell them some accessories and all that. So they're really these mobile bike shops have a lot of potential, negative potential certainly in the eyes of a local bike shop, but potentially it's something good for consumers. So it's definitely a cutting edge new thing that's going to be happening. And I, I just imagine we're going to be seeing it more and more all over the U.S. All right. So I think that just about sums it up for Interbike 2016. Woo! Be sure to check single tracks for all of our coverage of the show and the interesting products that we found. Thanks for joining us this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.